As we come to the scripture, let me ask you, uh, please, to pray with me. Father in heaven, there is that which has been before us always. But you've given it to us and you will never take it away. And that is this word that we have. The word of God, the scripture before us, and we're grateful. And we pray that we would never be surprised to see it and to have it opened before us. Particularly, of course, on this and all the Lord's days that we come together, but even in our homes and all the places we go, that this word would be with us. To give us grace, to give us your wisdom and power to live. Particularly, of course, to know you. So help us now as we come to know you better. In Jesus' name, amen. Open, please, to Luke and chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. I want to read from verse 28 to verse um, just 46. Luke chapter 19, please. It's a traditional text, of course, for Palm Sunday. We've taken up this and the others on various years. So Luke chapter 19, please. Of course, this is the word of God. Verse 28. And when he, and he there is, Uh, Jesus, when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why you're untying it, you shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it, just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it's written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And together we say, the grass withers, 
and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Now, God will help me. I want to take up these three, uh, these, these three scenes. Uh, you may think that's a lot of verses, Verbill, uh, on a Sunday. And it is. It's a bit ambitious. I'm not going to be exhaustive in any one of these scenes. Um, um, but there are some questions that, that come from them. The first question is this basic one, but one I think helpful to ask. Who's Jesus? What do these particular scenes tell us about Jesus? And then derived from that, of course, we'd be remiss to not ask the other question was, what does this tell us about God? Because Jesus came to reveal God to us. We, we read that in that John 1 passage um, from verse uh, 18 of, of John 1. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. And thus the incarnation, Jesus comes to make the Father known to us. In fact, Jesus would say, you remember to his disciples, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So, so when we see Jesus, when we come to know who he is, uh, we come to know who God is by seeing God with us, Jesus. Uh, and so, so those questions. But, but then it's fascinating that Luke bundles these three scenes together. Somewhat fascinating in that uh, this scene where Jesus cleanses or clears out the temple is, is, is most likely to have happened, at least according to Mark, on the next day, on Monday. But, 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 but Luke kind of bundles them all together. He doesn't really give us uh, uh, any sort of movement from this until verse 47 that I didn't read. But he says, and he was teaching daily in the temple. That is to say, well, after all these things happen, then you get this sort of summary statement or, or general statement. He was teaching daily in the temple. So after these things happened, he began to teach. And then verse 20 uh, chapter 20, verse 1, it says, One day, as Jesus was teaching, but, 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 but you get, for some reason, Luke, it seems, wants us to see these three scenes together. So he doesn't give us a break between the weeping over Jerusalem and the cleansing of the temple, or even the entry into Jerusalem, if you will, and the, the weeping. So, so I just want to think about that. What's it, what do we see when we see these three Scenes of Jesus together. They're a bit different, really. Different looks. Now, of course, when we take up these passages, we realize we're not even going to be exhaustive about Jesus or about God. I mean, I mean, not any one passage can tell us everything about Jesus. Not any one passage tells us everything about God. That's why you have the, the whole Bible. That's why we don't just study one passage or one theme or one thing. We, we try to look at the whole of it over the course of our times uh, together, but but I want just to ask the question: What does this tell us about Jesus, about God, and and why is it do we learn anything at all about Luke bundling these all together? So let's take this first one: uh, Jesus entering, at least approaching, in Luke's uh, way of looking at it, um, Jerusalem. It begins in verse twenty-eight and takes us to verse. Um, 40. Luke's prepared us for this. We haven't had time, of course. We haven't been reading through uh, the gospel according to Luke from beginning till we get to this point. But, but, but if, if, if you know this particular account, you, you know that, that, that Luke, um, back in chapter 9, sets the stage for Jesus going to Jerusalem in a rather dramatic way. It, it might feel subtle as you're reading, but if you are reading through, when you get to Luke 9, verse 51... 
Luke puts it like this. He says, when the days drew near for him, for Jesus, to be taken up. We know what that means. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. And, and, and well, it was a figure of speech. It tells us something about the resolve of Jesus. There seems to be a break now as Luke's writing through this account. And, and he's saying, what I want you to know right now is that Jesus has been doing things and teaching things and all of that. But now there's, it seems to be a change in his countenance, a, a change. And he's, he's now resolute. He said, well, okay, we've been, this has been all good. I, I needed to do all this. But now I've got to go to Jerusalem. I've got to get there because that's where it's all going to happen. So much so that uh, this passage goes on. He said he sent messengers ahead of him and went and entered a, a village of the Samaritans. Now remember the Samaritans and the Jews weren't friends. And uh, to make preparation for him. But the people didn't receive him because his fate, face was set toward Jerusalem. Uh, the Samaritans even realized he's going to the city we hate. And so we, we, somehow we get the resolve of Jesus to go to Jerusalem. And so if you read, if you have opportunity, and I encourage you to do that with this in mind, just watching the flow from this uh, chapter 9 to the time that we come in chapter 19, verse 28, where Jesus uh, comes to Jerusalem, you'll find a number of markers along the way that he's on his way to Jerusalem, on his way to Jerusalem. The one most... Um, the closest, if you will, the one closest to where we are in Luke 19 comes in, 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 in verse 11. And it says, as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem. And because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediate, immediately. In other words, from this 9.15 on, the, everything that Jesus is doing, you get the sense that he's on his way to Jerusalem. And that's what's informing where he's going, what he's saying and all that. So, so we have that now as we come to this passage. And so uh, he enters. Um, we know this scene. Clearly, Jesus is in control. He knows exactly what he wants to do it do and how he wants to do it. He knows that he wants to ride into the city of Jerusalem on a colt, the foal of a donkey, and one that's never been used, never been never been ridden before. You wonder why not? And he doesn't tell us why not. <laughs> Other than perhaps here he is entering into Jerusalem on sacred purpose. And animals used in sacred purposes were always unused for anything else. And so now he's entering into Jerusalem, as we know, to give himself. And, 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 and the people there respond in a particular way. You wonder, why are they responding this way to Jesus? Everything's been a bit hush, 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 hush. Hush, hush, until now. But, 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 but Jesus is, is pleased with them shouting, Hosanna, blessed is the king. We have it here. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They're seeing this one who's coming, this Jesus, uh, as, 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 as king. And interestingly, they, probably unwittingly, connect Jesus' coming to the announcement of the angels about him. Uh, Christmas time, we always read from, from Luke in chapter 14, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he's pleased. And notice this verse 38. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So they're getting, it seems, who this one is, who Jesus 
is and they're praising him. They see him as the king who's now come, in their view, to conquer. How he's going to conquer, we anticipate that they're thinking he's the one who's going to conquer the Romans for us. So bring us this political peace, maybe in a military kind of way, who knows? But, but that's what's on their minds. But Jesus, you see, wants them to see that he's the king. That's why he's coming on this donkey. He's, he's enacting, if you will, this prophecy from Zechariah. We read a bit of it for our call to worship this morning. But Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. That's what's happening. They're rejoicing. They're shouting aloud. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. Is he humble and mounted on a donkey? On a coal, the foal of a donkey. Zacharias had said, when your king comes, you'll recognize him. <laughs> He's on this little animal. You, you could picture a full-grown man on this rather smallish, odd-looking, non-ferocious-looking animal. Here he comes. I wonder if his feet dragged as he was sitting on this beast. Right? Because, you see, when kings would come into a city and they were going to make war, they would come on a horse, a great and mighty horse. Notice how this goes on. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle a bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. You see. So, so they're, they're, whether they know it or not, they're getting it. They're seeing what Jesus wants them to see. That he's this king who's now coming into Jerusalem, not to bring war, although there'll be a battle, but to bring peace. And you see, the peace that he's going to bring is different than they might be anticipating. They, they think perhaps the enemy is Rome, but that's not the real enemy. The real enemy is sin and death. The, the real enemy that Jesus comes after is, isn't something physical per se, at least in the beginning. It's a spiritual thing. It's, it's to bring peace with God, human beings uh, and God. And he's going to bring it in a way that's different because here he is. He's coming gently. He's, he's coming humbly, if you will, uh, uh, banishing no weapons, he's just on this donkey. What kind of damage can that do? Because he's come in humility to give himself. Remember what he said. I've not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Who was thinking cross? Jesus was thinking cross. And in fact, you remember that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he gathered together his disciples. And this is one of the Monday Thursday themes that we often take up. And you know it. You can picture it. I trust in your mind if you've been around the Bible, around the church at all in the course of your life. That there was a, a time when, when Jesus was with his disciples. They were gathering for a Passover meal. And no one had served the other by washing feet. And so Jesus humbles himself. 
in, in a scene that nobody was expecting. Nobody would have thought this was going to take place. But, but Jesus strips himself of his outward glory, the clothes that he had on, essentially, and wraps a towel around his waist. And if you saw a scene and saw the picture of it and someone asked you, who's the Lord here? Who's the master? You wouldn't have picked Jesus. Because there he was, gentleness and humility, giving himself. Washing their feet. Paul would pick this up in Philippians in chapter 2, a passage again of that's familiar to us. Verse 5 Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptying himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name, that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You see, they were right about Jesus King, but they were probably not getting how he was going to be victorious by giving himself. You see, in order for him to really deliver and be savior, he had to be a king. A king is the one who saves. A non-king can't really save. You remember when God delivered the Israelites out of Egypt... He was able to do that. Why? Because he was more powerful than Pharaoh. If he wasn't, it wouldn't have worked. In order to deliver, in order to save, he had to be the Lord. He had to be powerful. More so than any of those who held his people in their grip. And so Jesus, you see, in order to save us, must be the Lord, he must be the king. If he isn't, then he can't save us, you see. And so when we come to Jesus, we have to realize that when we receive him as our savior, we're also acknowledging, we should be, we're receiving him as the one who is the Lord. He is really the king. If he weren't, he couldn't be our savior. And I only mention that because, because there's there some who, who say, well, you know, Jesus is my Savior, but he's not really my Lord. Or we hear testimonies to the effect where people say, well, I, Jesus, you know, I accepted him, I received him as my Savior, you know, 15 years ago, but only five years ago did I really make him my Lord. And, and you, you do, I, I get what people are saying about that that, that, that I was saved and I enjoyed it. And then, oh, it dawned on me that I should be following him as well. I get that. That's wonderful and fine. But remember, we never make him the Lord. He is. And if he isn't, then he's never been our savior because he can't save us unless he really is the Lord, you see. This came home to me through my wife. Um, I didn't ask you about this, but I've shared it before. Um, but, you know, people would, would share that, you know, they knew Jesus as their savior and later as their Lord. And Karen said, well, I grew up as a Roman Catholic and I, I knew he was the Lord. I just didn't know he was the savior. Backwards, you see. Well, you get that. And so, no, he's all of that. And it's not done till he's all of that. And we're not 
we won't really know him until we know him as all of that. Oh, yes, he gives himself, but he rules and reigns. He gives himself that we might trust him. And now you see, he's the Lord. Now, now the Pharisees didn't want a Lord. They didn't want a Savior. They didn't want him. Not like that. They didn't. They wanted to be their own lords. They wanted to be their own kings. They wanted to go their own way. And, and they certainly didn't need one who would give himself for them. They, they really didn't need that, you see. Because, you see, to, to receive Jesus as he is, this humble king, means that we're humbled as well. To see him is to see our own need. To see him is to see our sin. To see him is to see our hopelessness and helplessness. To see him is to see that we need him to save us, to rule over all our enemies, and even to rule over us, to change our own hearts, to conquer us, that we would be really his, you see. And then we're to live like that. We're to live as those who are humbled. You might remember that Jesus, when he was with his disciples on one occasion, said this. This is in Mark chapter 10, verse 42. And Jesus called them to him and said to him, you know that those who are considered rulers of, of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over you, over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Who is this king? Who is this Jesus? He's the one who comes to serve. He's the one in humility who gives himself that we might live. To receive him means we can't be proud and arrogant. To receive him means we recognize who we are in his presence. Creatures created utterly dependent upon God. That in and of itself should humble us but sinners as well, hopeless and helpless, without his saving work and without his powerful saving grace. What's that to do in us? (laughs) Well, humble us to such a degree that we, like him, give ourselves, serve one another to know that the First, we become the servant of all. So then Jesus went on to say, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom uh, for many. And then you see, we're to live, if he is really the king, we're to live then a a life of humble, uh, joyful obedience. One of the statements that I stuck with me, I trust with you, comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 6, verse 46, where Jesus looks among the people and says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't do the things I tell you? And then John speaks to us in John, chapter 14, verse 15, and Jesus says, If you love me, you'll obey my commandments. 
that isn't legalism. We're not earning it. It isn't simply moralism that the only goal here is to be good people. It isn't legalism because we're not earning our salvation. We're receiving it by faith and then living the implications of it in the context of our lives. It's not moralism because we're living dependent upon the Holy Spirit. I'm going to do a baptism, two of them, later this afternoon or later this morning um, to young women who've gone through our uh, communicants class. And uh, part of their vow is, do you promise and resolve in humble reliance upon the Holy Spirit? See, that's it, you see. That's what keeps this from being moralistic. It, it, we're, we're stating we need the help of the Spirit. We're doing what we're doing uh, because He's at work within us. And that's what it means to have this one who is our humble King. To know that He gave Himself for us. And we receive Him. As needy ones who then, in humility, serve one another. Do you know Jesus like that? Do you know God like that? Second one, and I'll move more quickly. The second one sees Jesus weeping. This is a scene. It isn't surprising, not if you've been reading the Gospel of Luke, you can see some lament in Jesus. But, but it, it's, it's one of those scenes that we, we, we have to put in our minds about who Jesus is, who God is. Verse 41, and when he drew near uh, and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, um, what that, uh, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they're hidden from your eyes and so forth. For now the the days will come upon you when enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground and your children within you and they'll not leave one stone upon another in you. In other words, he's seeing, what Jesus is seeing is he looks out over Jerusalem, the city there. What he's seeing is the destruction, the judgment of Jerusalem. And it brings not just tears to his eyes. This isn't just a, you know, Jesus with wet eyes or a tear falling down. He has to do one of these. This is weeping. This is sobbing. This is convulsing. This is, this is, if you were there, you would hear it. You, you wouldn't have to even look at Jesus. You'd say, who is that? Jesus. Weeping, you'd think that would be a moment when he'd be elated. You'd think that would be a moment. Hey, I know the Pharisees didn't get it, but they never get it. But the people got it. They see who I am. They're rejoicing. You'd think this would be a time of great joy. But Jesus leaves this scene, and 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 we don't know what else is going on in the background or any of that. But but there's Jesus' picture, and he's wailing. He's 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 sobbing over the city of Jerusalem because he knows what's going to happen there. The city, this great city, the, the city of David, the city of kings is going to reject the king who comes. This great city, the holy city, the city with, with priests and sacrifices is going to reject the priest who comes. This city that would be, should be the home of the prophets is the city that killed the prophets. And now the prophet is going to come and they're going to kill him as well. And Jesus sees that and he says, you'll You'll be destroyed. And we know that happened. 70 AD, the city of Jerusalem destroyed. And even in the scriptures, we read from then on end, uh, primarily look to the new Jerusalem. This one is to come, the city made not with human hands. And, and so Jesus is lamenting and he's, 
He's weeping. And you say, what, but, 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 but Jesus, you could have changed all that. You could change the hearts of people. You could, you could change the hearts of people. Even after, of course, this is part of God's plan that, that they reject you and that you're crucified and, and rise. But, 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 but couldn't you do something about this? And you could change all of this so that, so that the, it goes better for the city of Jerusalem than it's going to go. And, and of course he could. So this isn't saying everything about Jesus. But it is saying that when he looks and sees judgment to come, it isn't cavalier. It isn't dismissive. It isn't contemptuous. There's something in the heart of Jesus. There's something in the heart of God. That when he contemplates judgment, he weeps. One pastor, John Piper, Minneapolis, puts it like this. He says, Jesus' mercy is tenderly moved He feels the sorrow of the situation. This doesn't mean his sovereign plan has wrecked on the rocks of human autonomy. It means that Jesus is more emotionally complex than we think he is. He really feels the sorrow of the situation. No doubt there is a deep inner peace that God is in control and that God's wise purposes will come to pass. But that doesn't mean he can't cry. We know that. We know certain situations not this dramatic, but we know situations where we have a certain peace that we know God is sovereign and in control of all the situation. But yet in the situation, it brings sadness. And we weep and we weep with those who weep. We know that. We know even in ourselves that measure of complexity. And so here is Jesus. Uh, he's, he's playing out what we, what we have in the prophet Ezekiel in a couple of passages in chapter 18, verse 23. Ezekiel is said by God, he says, Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live, turn back from your evil ways. For why would you die, O house of Jerusalem? We, we get the heart of God here. You want to say, but God, you can change all of this. Uh, that's not what he's talking about here. He's saying, this is, this is my heart. B.B. Warfield, a theologian of uh, great note from 100 plus years ago, wrote um, an essay that I've quoted from time to time. Uh, maybe one of the only essays, one of the only pieces written on this particular subject, interestingly enough. Maybe it was exhaustive and everybody thought, well, by the early 1900s, everything that had been said about it by B.B. Warfield. I don't know. But um, it's an essay called The Emotional Life of Our Lord. And he puts it like this. He says, we may, at any rate, place the loud wailing over the stubborn unbelief of Jerusalem and the deep sighing of the Pharisees determined opposition side by side as exhibitions of the profound pain given to our Lord's sympathetic heart by those who per- persist rejection of him required his, at his hands his sternest reprobation. He sighed from the bottom of his heart when he declared, there shall no sign be given to this generation. He wailed aloud when he answered, the day shall come. A day shall come upon thee when thine enemies shall dash thee to the ground. Here's the sentence I want you to remember. It hurt Jesus to hand over even hardened sinners to their doom. He knew he'd be rejected. He must be. That was the plan of God. 
But do you know Jesus like that? You know God like that? That in looking at judgment, knowing the depths of what that means, he weeps. You see, as a, as a believer, I, I read that and I, I think, are those tears of Jesus my tears? Are those tears of Jesus my tears? In other words, when I contemplate the judgment of those who do not believe, do I weep for them? Now, obviously not 24-7 and all of that, but you get the point. Do I weep? You know, Jesus, when he looked at, at those who were lost as he put it, we find this in Matthew chapter 9. It says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, the labors are few, and therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out labors into his harvest. But when he saw these ones who, who were lost, who weren't following him at that point, he had compassion upon them. Is that my compassion? Do I know that? Do I feel that? Do I, do I look at those who are lost? Am I contemptuous? Am I cavalier? Oh, they're just going to go to hell. Or are Jesus' tears my tears? You see, do I know him like that? Do I know a God who knows profoundly judgment and weeps, you see? If you're an unbeliever, I pray this breaks your heart. Because here's one Jesus who really knows what's coming. He really knows what's coming uh, to those who don't believe, to those who reject him. He knows what that truth is and he looks at that and he looks at those who are going in that direction apart from him and he weeps for them. He says, if only you knew, if only you knew what was going to happen. If only you knew the way that made for peace. If anybody should have known the way that made for peace, it should have been these Israelites. They, 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 they had seen it their whole lives that a sacred one would be given for them. They were there to celebrate the Passover. The lambs were being slaughtered all over the place so that they would know the way of peace. And now the Lamb of God shows and they miss him. And he says, oh, that you would really know this. This is the day you see of, your, of the visitation. I'm, I'm here. I'm here. I'm here. And when Jesus, and I pray I, look at unbelievers, it should be my heart, oh, that you only knew the way of peace that you would receive this on the day of visitation. Finally, very quickly, he takes up the temple. And as Jesus enters into the temple, you know, he, he, he sees it and he sees what's going on there. He said, this isn't what is to be. This isn't how this is, is supposed to be. This, this, this temple, this place is to be, especially there, to be a gathering place for all the nations. Luke doesn't have all the nations. But it's a gathering place for prayer, you see. But what he's seeing is that there's all this hustle and bustle. Now, the hustle and bustle, or at least what was happening there, though some were being exploited, was an okay thing to happen, but it just should have happened somewhere else. They needed particular coinage in order to pay the tax in the, in the temple. So there were ways to get that coinage fairly. Uh, they needed sacrifices in order to make sacrifices. There were ways and places to get those sacrifices fairly, but not there, you see. Because the temple had a particular need, so use. And so Jesus comes and he, he clears it out and he 
cleanses it. Can, can, I mean, as we're reading through this, at least for me, I'm reading through uh, Luke and, and my head's just bouncing. I see this gentle Jesus who's come to give himself for us. I see this Jesus who's weeping over those who are facing judgment. And, and now I see a violent, it appears, Jesus who's coming in and, and cleansing and clearing. And so we need to know that as we bundle these together, as we see these together, the question, do you know the gentle Jesus, the humble Jesus who's given himself for you, that you might have life? Do you know the Jesus who weeps over judgment and calls you to himself? But do you know the one who's come to cleanse or cast out? Oh, that is this very one. Oh, that you know the Jesus who has given himself. Oh, that you'd know the one who weeps. Over judgment, this, if you're an unbeliever, that that would break your heart. If you're a believer, that you would be filled with gratefulness. And you know the one who cleanses, but casts out. As he put it, that we would know the way of peace on the day of visitation. There was a night. It was the night that Jesus was betrayed. He was with his disciples. He took bread. He gave thanks. He broke it. He gave it to his disciples. And he said, this is my body, which is given for you. The same way he took the cup. And again, after giving thanks, this too he gave to his disciples. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And the apostle adds, as often as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we declare the Lord's death until he comes. What are we declaring? But at least this. But this one Jesus has come, the king, to conquer by way of humility, giving himself. That in humility we might receive him. And serve. This one Jesus knows what judgment is, and he weeps over those on their way to it. And we now plead by his spirit and word for you to come. And he's the very one who cleanses this priest, but he casts out those who do not believe and do not follow him. And so as we come to this table, what we're declaring is we are those who know his sacrifice and humble ourselves as needy ones to come and receive from him. And that we are grateful that He took our judgment upon himself and cleansed us. Let's pray. Father, I pray for us that you would grant grace for us to know Jesus and thus through him 
God to know you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I pray now that you'll take this bread and this juice and you'll set it apart for this purpose that we might declare your death until you return. In your death you gave yourself in humility and as king conquering all of your and our enemies for us sin and death. And the judgment about which your tears have warned has now been taken in Jesus. And that by your spirit you have worked in us in such a way as to cleanse us that you might live within us. So, Father, please bring all that to bear in our minds and our hearts. And as we come to this, what we call Holy Week, that as always, but particularly now, we would be amazed, filled with awe and wonder at this one Jesus. And this we pray. In Jesus' name.